0: Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's b-a-h-a-i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Robbie Musa, an associate professor of biochemistry at the State University of New York who grew up in Ghana. I started the interview by asking Robbie to describe where she grew up, and what was it like growing up there?
1: I grew up in Ghana, in West Africa. I was actually born in Chicago, and at the age of five, I moved with my family to Ghana. Uh, my father is from Ghana. My mother is from the United States, but I was raised in Ghana. I would have to describe Ghana in terms of how it compares to the United States. Mm-hmm. It's... Warm all year round. it's tropical all year round. I thought we had seasons there. Uh, we were told we had the rainy and the dry season, <laughs> but compared to here, I'd say are, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, there there isn't much in the way uh, of seasons. Because of that, seasons here are still very tough for me. Mm-hmm. because I'm accustomed to a tropical environment where there's always green grass, there are always flowers, there's always the sun. So that's a challenge for me. I just found it to be a very open place, not only in terms of the the culture and the people, but also the living environment. It was relatively safe.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we spent a lot of time outside, outdoors, so in that way it was very it was very free. Mm-hmm. In terms of school, what is typical is the children go to boarding school. You can start boarding school from the elementary level. All the way up through to the end of what would be high school here mm-hmm. but most students actually begin boarding school in the equivalent of what would be the seventh grade in this country mm-hmm. and so I went to boarding school. Um, I wore school uniforms and things like that so in that way it's it's very different from what you have here because um, over there was far more structured mm-hmm. the society was one where. A premium is put on respect for people who are older than you, for family members who are more senior than yourself, for teachers who, who are, you know, aunts, uncles, that sort of thing. And that's kind of different from the way it is here. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that type of structure, that level of structure is not something I've experienced here. But all in all, I, I loved it, mm-hmm. I miss it, mm-hmm. and I'm always happy to be able to go back.
2: Yeah.
0: Now, what were the circumstances that had you had your family going back to Ghana?
1: Well, my dad went to college here. I mentioned earlier that he was from Ghana. hmm And he went to college here. He he attended Yale University and and got a degree in law and then did graduate work in law at Northwestern. Mhm. It was in Chicago that he met my my mother because she and her older sister were also in Chicago at the time. Mm-hmm. When he was here in the United States after he graduated, despite the fact that he had stellar grades and what have you, he essentially couldn't find a job due to the racist climate Mm -hmm. at that time and the racial tension at that time. Mm -hmm. It was the '60s at that time, and so after trying for a number of years and struggling, he decided to leave and and go back to Ghana Mm -hmm. and and settle there, which is was his home, so that wasn't a problem, but. He had hoped to be able to establish something here, mm-hmm. and and he wasn't successful with that.
0: I see. How long did you stay in Ghana?
1: We moved to Ghana when I was five, mm-hmm. and I remained um, in Ghana till I was an adult, and then I moved back here so, to the United States
0: mm-hmm. to go to college or yes, after college, to college, go to college yes. mm-hmm. undergraduate college,
1: undergraduate, and mm-hmm. then later graduate school. Mm-hmm.
0: What was your religious upbringing like?
1: Ah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you may not know this, but that's a loaded question. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> really. Um, okay. <laughs> my mother was Catholic,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and she, when, you, when you're when you Catholic, you take a vow at marriage to raise your children as Catholics. Mm-hmm. So she was working to raise us as Catholics, mm-hmm. uh, my siblings and I. My dad, at that point, was calling himself an atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, his entire family were Muslim, mm-hmm. and my... Mother's family in the United States were Black Southern Baptists, mm-hmm. and the children in the neighborhood we were going we were growing up in in Ghana were all Presbyterian. <laughs> so I grew up with a lot of exposure to different people of different religious backgrounds. Mm-hmm. They were all around me, yeah. and to me that just seemed very normal.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Where did you go to college?
1: I started off at a small school in Texas called Prairie View A&M University. Mm -hmm. I got an undergraduate degree there in chemistry, Mm -hmm. and then I went to graduate school at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, which is their main campus Mm -hmm. in northwest Arkansas. Mm -hmm. I got a Ph.D. in the area of organic chemistry, and then after that I did postdoctoral research in at the Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla, California, right outside of San Diego. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I accepted an assistant professorship at the State University of New York in Albany, which is where I am now, and now I'm an associate professor.
0: Mm -hmm. Did you always like chemistry when you were, like, growing up?
1: You know, when I was growing up, I was fascinated, you know, growing up in Ghana by the difference between the, the science of medicine in Ghana versus the science of medicine in the Western world. Mm. And oftentimes when people were, were ill, they saw an herbalist mm. in Ghana. Mm. And over here, of course, you know, they went to a hospital. Now that's not, that's not to say that there aren't hospitals or there weren't hospitals in Ghana or clinics
2: mm-hmm.
1: in Ghana. Mm-hmm. They had them, but, you know, for your average, for, for, for many of the people, it was cheaper and more convenient to see an herbalist or a traditional healer. And I became very fascinated at a very young age, around six years old, with the fact that there were apparently molecules in these plants that affected cures or that served as treatments for a variety of ailments, and that they worked in much the same way that molecules in in pills or tablets or syrups or whatever it is that that one is prescribed here Mm -hmm. in the United States. I, I realized that essentially they were very similar, and I became very, very enchanted by the with the idea of investigating these molecules, figuring out what they were, trying to find cures for diseases for which there are no known cures using these plants. Mm. And so I decided when I was very young what I wanted to be when I grew up, and that's essentially what I've become.
0: Mm. You weren't interested in being a doctor?
1: You mean an, an MD? Yeah, an MD. Yeah. I was, but only because I didn't know what I wanted to be was called, ah. okay? Mm-hmm. I eventually realized that if I want to be the person who isolates molecules from plants, mm-hmm. is able to determine their chemical structure,
2: mm-hmm.
1: is able to subsequently test them and assess their bioactivity, MDs don't typically do that. Right. I realized that I would need to study chemistry to be able to do that. Uh. I wanted to be able to isolate and characterize molecules. I wanted to be able to manipulate their structures and do very specific kinds of things with them in terms of analyzing them and that sort of thing. And I realized that I really probably would not be able to do that with a tr- with traditional training
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, to become uh, a medical doctor.
0: hmm so it was more you were more interested in how the herbs worked rather than figuring out what they were and then dispensing them to people.
1: I was more interested in figuring out what they were mm-hmm. and less much less interested in dispensing them to people. Yeah. Because you see my own view is that and and I I had this view then and I still have this view is that if if I if I'm able to to make some strides in this forward strides in this area I have the potential to affect millions and millions of people positively. Mm-hmm. As a physician, I may affect—you know—I affect those people that I meet directly and I treat. Mm-hmm. If I generate a new drug to mm-hmm. treat a disease, mm-hmm. I potentially can affect millions and millions of people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And and so that's something that is is attractive to me and pleasing to me.
0: Yeah. So, what was your research in getting your doctorate? <laughs>
1: It was uh, I guess what I would call hardcore organic chemistry mm-hmm. uh, that there was nothing biological about it, which was not a bad thing. I, I set out to be trained that way because I wanted to be able to look at biological problem with a solid background in in the area of organic chemistry.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: so my doctoral work was on figuring out or elucidating. The mechanism of reactions involving carbon carbon triple bonds with electron deficient molecules which are classified or generally known as electrophile
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so it was an exercise in determining how it is that that two particular species came to react mm-hmm. and how the the various bonds within the two species broke or were formed as the molecules were being transformed. Into brand new molecule, mm-hmm. and and so that's that's what my doctoral work was. Just that's just very very general. But. Right
0: now, so was there significance to this particular kind of carbon carbon mo- uh, molecule that had like grand implications or?
1: Uh, um, not really.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think more than anything else, what the project allowed me to do mm-hmm. was develop a very keen sense of investigation, mm-hmm. and. Learning how to look at a problem and ask appropriate questions, mm. mm-hmm. and then develop appropriate experiments to then answer those questions and develop a hypothesis. Yeah. and that's something that I now realize I use throughout my life, mm-hmm. not just in my own research lab. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a it's a very 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 important skill to be able to have just in general.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: aside from that, and more specifically. It taught me how to investigate organic reaction mechanisms, which I don't know if that means anything to you, uh, in particular, but it does allow me to do investigations on how molecules or drugs interact with molecules that are inside a cell. Mm-hmm. You know, why is it that a particular molecule can cross the cell membrane and affect a particular transformation within the cell. Mm-hmm. Well, all those types of reactions that happen inside a cell are, for the most part, organic reactions. And so if you can understand, if you, if you have a background mm-hmm. in understanding organic reactions, then I'm not meaning to say that it becomes very simple, but you certainly have the tools to investigate it mm-hmm. and try to figure out what's going on.
0: And what are you teaching at uh, State University of New York?
1: My background is in organic chemistry, as I said. So I teach both graduate and undergraduate courses. Mm-hmm. Um, at the undergraduate level, I teach organic chemistry, mm-hmm. the gateway to medical school for <laughs> lots of students.
0: Yeah, sort of like the uh, rite of passage.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's what they say. You know, I, I don't, I don't share that view, but but, but
2: the students do. Um,
1: so so I teach organic chemistry at the undergraduate level.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I teach, you know, upper level or graduate courses in the area of organic chemistry also. Mm-hmm. But because my postdoctoral background was in bio-inorganic chemistry, I also teach graduate biochemistry, mm-hmm. undergraduate biochemistry. Um, we also have a forensics track in our program, mm-hmm. and I teach the component of that track that deals with the workhorse instrument that that folks see on the TV program CSI. Yes. So, mass spectrometry, gas chromatography, identification and isolation of compounds from complex matrices like blood and urine and stuff like that and, mm-hmm. you know, so I I do teach component of that course. Mhm.
0: Are you doing any research there?
1: Yes, I do have a research lab. Mhm. In my lab, I, I dabble in a variety of areas. Mhm. One of the areas that I'm uh, working in is is natural products chemistry. Mm -hmm. Um, Natural products are are pretty much molecules that, that nature has created, either in some organism like bacteria or, you know, a marine sponge or various animals. I deal in plant natural products. So among other things, what I do is I investigate plants from around the world that are reported to have therapeutic activity in the way of gastrointestinal cancers um, mm. and inflammation and antibacterial activity.
0: Wow, it sounds back to what your interest was when you were a little kid.
1: Exactly. I'm doing exactly what it is I decided to do when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So, so I investigate plants uh, uh, from around the world looking at those areas. So that's mm-hmm. one area that I'm in. Another area that I'm in is what we call organic synthesis. So it's The art of making molecules and designing molecules and designing ways to make molecules. I do a bit of that in in the field of what's known as organosulfur chemistry. So um, organic molecules, which simply means molecules that contain the element carbon, that happen to contain within them the element sulfur. And sulfur often confers some unique and interesting properties to organic molecules. Usually, though, the one that stands out is the smell. Mm Mm-hmm. And often, for example, the odor of skunk Mm -hmm. is a direct result of organic molecules that contain sulfur. Mm. The odor of onions and garlic is a direct result of organic molecules that contain sulfur. Rotten uh, eggs. Yeah, rotten (laughs) eggs. Well, the, the, the main culprit in rotten eggs, it contains sulfur, but... The, the sulfur compound way. isn't organic because it doesn't contain carbon. Uh, but, yes, sulfur is the culprit there in terms of the odor also. I see. That's another area that I'm working in. Mm. And right now I'm trying to sort of branch out and get into the area of materials chemistry okay. um, and try to make uh, microelectronic devices and molecular wires and things like that. So I'm developing that now. That's not that's a new area for me. But the other two are established.
0: Mm-hmm. So, in other words... Using um, organic material rather than, let's say, silicon?
1: Exactly. I- exactly. So making organic semiconductors
0: mm-hmm.
1: would be an example, but that's exactly what I'm talking about. And
0: what would be the advantage of the organ- organic base versus the silicon base?
1: First of all, structurally speaking, you have quite a bit of control mm-hmm. that you don't have, you know, when you're working with some of the well-established metallic types of systems. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that theory, and by that I mean theoretical calculations, Mm -hmm. have indicated that if a number of these types of molecules can be made, these organic semiconductors can be made, Mm -hmm. they actually will circumvent some of the challenges that one has with the metallic semi and superconductors. The main problem with the metallic ones is that you can't really operate them at room temperature. They're not superconducting, Mm -hmm. um, or or they don't act as semiconductors unless you're pretty well below room temperature, mm-hmm. you know, very, very cold temperatures, mm-hmm. And a vari- a number of, of calculations that have been published have indicated that this is a problem that one might be able to get around if you have organic semi or superconductors. I see. Because it turns out that if you have an organic molecule that, for purposes of discussion, is, is in the form of a long chain, mm-hmm and that long chain has alternating double and single bonds or Mm -hmm. single and triple bonds, Mm -hmm. that there are special characteristics that are conferred upon that molecule if you can extend that chain for quite a bit of distance. Mm -hmm. In theory, at least, if one is able to accomplish that, then you can conceivably have a wire that is a single molecule long, Mm. and you can control the length of that wire, and what that will mean is that you can have electronic devices that the eye can't even see, but yet can conduct electricity mm. and and can have a current that flows along them. So there's a lot of potential there, and that's a that that's an area that I want to get into. Mm. It turns out that when organic molecules contain sulfur, mm-hmm. there are some special advantages that are conferred upon the, the molecule if it in fact has these alternating single and multiple bonds. Mm-hmm. And because we work in the area of organosulfur ch- chemistry, it sort of seems like a natural fit or, or natural progression. And so that's, that's an area that, that I'm sort of working to get into now.
0: Yeah. Do you think if you had not moved to Ghana that you would have found yourself where you are today mm-hmm. as an organic chemist?
1: You know what? I mean, one can never tell what things would have been. hmm But my suspicion is that the answer to that is no. Hmm. I would not be, and I say that because I just think that if my siblings and I had been raised here, here meaning the United States, right, it's highly likely, given the kinds of problems that my dad was running into, finding employment and what have you, Mm -hmm. that we would have ended up growing up in inner city Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I think that the circumstances might have been, or let me put it this way. The probability that my siblings and I would not have been distracted by all the distractions that one and and things that one can get into that we didn't have access to in Ghana mm-hmm. you know I, I think the probability of, of of that would have been extremely low mm-hmm. and so i I just don't see given what I know about. My family, for example, mm-hmm. on my mother's side, who remain in Chicago, I just don't see how my siblings and I could have ended up where we are,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, in terms of the level of education we have, where we are, the jobs we have. Mm-hmm. And now in saying that, I don't mean to say that people in inner city Chicago or who were raised in inner city Chicago don't have jobs or don't aren't highly educated. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just mm-hmm. saying that the pro- so many of the distractions, mm-hmm that one has here in the United States we didn't have in Ghana Mm
2: -hmm.
1: at the time when we were really, really impressionable.
0: Right. In addition to distractions, how about one's self-image and how that's portrayed in one country versus another?
1: Well, quite honestly, I think that that's the greatest, most important thing that we got in Ghana. Mm -hmm. As a person of African descent, which I am, Mm -hmm. in Africa, you're just a person, you're somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, you're somebody in your country, and it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, you're somebody. You're proud of your your culture and all of that. When m- my siblings and I moved back here, it was so clear to us that that was a major thing that was absent in most of the Americans of African descent that we met. Mm-hmm. For us, it was ve- it was glaring. Mm. glaringly absent. I really believe that that the fact that we were raised in Ghana made it so that so much of the baggage that this society has sort of created, that people of African descent carry around through just learning. Mm -hmm. I think that that baggage is very heavy, it's very debilitating, And in many cases, you don't even know you're carrying it. So I'm so glad that we were raised in Ghana. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad we were raised in Africa Mm -hmm. because we have a sense of identity, which I now believe is so important to success. I'll give you just a brief example of what I'm talking about. Growing up in Ghana, let's say... I go out and I try to get a job, Mm -hmm. okay, and they don't hire me. Mm -hmm. It never dawns on me that it was because I'm a black person, right? And so that's not a burden you're carrying around. Mm -hmm. Here, you always wonder, Mm -hmm. and that that burden is really, really heavy. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's it's like this this it's like four or five suitcases of rocks, mm-hmm. and they're with you, and you can't move without them, and yet you can't pick them up and carry them. Right. they're it's just really, really tough. And it, and and what keeps you awake at night, and what keeps you wondering, is that is the not knowing. Mm-hmm. You 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 just have no idea. You don't know. So whether opportunities have not been sort of there for you because of your race. Now, given that I'm of African descent and I'm here in the United States, the question would be: Well, how is your perception different from, say, that of someone who was raised here, Mm -hmm. who is also of African descent? Mm -hmm. And I would put it this way: It's different in the sense that you see, being raised in Ghana, there were people who were nice to us and there were people who were mean to us. Mm -hmm. Okay, but all of them were African. Right. Okay. And so you connect meanness, not with color, mm-hmm. but with just someone being not a very nice person, mm-hmm. okay? So one of the ways that that manifests itself for us here is that if I try to go out and get a job here, mm-hmm. and someone doesn't give me the job, and say the people doing the hiring were not of African descent, they were some of some other race, right? The first thing is that it doesn't dawn on us that it's our color that kept us from the position.
0: Even here in the United States? Yes. Okay.
1: Okay, so what I'm saying is that even if that's the case, mm-hmm. it doesn't dawn on us. Right. But even when it dawns on us, mm-hmm. it kind of just feels like someone in Ghana not giving us a job because they were mean. Mm. So there isn't sort of a color associated with it. Right. And, and the, the accompanying burden. Right, right. Uh, of of that. The other thing, the the other thing that that does is it creates a situation where you have a sense of hope, whereas I, I think many many people here of, of of African descent who were raised in the United States develop a sense of hopelessness. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if I may, may I tell a story? Please. Okay, so when I started graduate school. The first week I was at school, a couple of professors, and, and I was the only person of Africa, of any color, actually, in the department. Mm-hmm. Within the first two weeks, I was asked to meet with a couple of professors. And they met with me, and they said to me, that department did not give PhDs to black people. Mm-hmm. And that I had been accepted into the program simply to put a good face on the department and that I was articulate, and, and, and therefore there might be opportunities available to me in the Department of English and Foreign Language, and that, you know, I should sort of seek out that department because I would never get a, a, PA, a graduate degree in that chemistry department. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, what I found really fascinating about that experience is people's reaction to it. Okay, when I shared that incident with people from Africa, mm-hmm. their response was always, "Oh, don't worry. You don't worry about anything. If you're at the top of your class, nobody can do anything to you. Mm-hmm. You just don't worry. You just study hard. If you study hard, you know." That was the response. Right. And when I spoke to the friends who I had that I had who were African American, their response was. You don't have to put up with that. Mm-hmm. You need to leave. Mm-hmm. You you need to you know because if you stay, you're going to be playing right into their hands and you know that sort of thing. Right. I I chose to stay. Mm-hmm. I chose to work hard. I chose to stay, and the the, the rest is history. I did get mm-hmm. a PhD from that department. Mm-hmm. Okay, and since then, that department has had many. What would be classified as minority students, or students from traditionally underserved populations, in their graduate school?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: All right, but but I'm not sure that that would happen if I had just left, mm-hmm. and and taking the attitude that well they've disrespected me, right. and and therefore I don't have to put up with this. I'm 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 going somewhere else. I I'm not saying that every person of African descent should have done should have stayed and done what I did. Mm-hmm. What I am saying is that the fact is that in many, many places we still need to fight the fight in this country. Right. Okay, and fighting the fight cannot always mean that we assert ourselves by by deciding that we're leaving. Mm-hmm. You know, the world of chemistry is small. Where am I going to apply to, and, and then say, "Oh, well, you know, I didn't like the program. I'm not going." Whatever. Mm-hmm. Chances are that that would have hurt me. Mm-hmm. But but i can i I certainly feel that i'm a I'm a better person for it, and that sacrifice is not for everybody mm-hmm. but I do feel that in some small way, I was able to influence future events in that department in terms of their being receptive to other students from underserved populations after I got my degree
2: mm.
0: and was that resistance really clear to you as you were going through the program
1: <laughs> yes and Oftentimes, people, of, people who have been raised in Africa find it very hard to see. Mm. You know, a lot of times you have to hit them over the head and say, <laughs> I don't like it because you're black. I mean, you know, whereas I think people who are raised here are more highly, uh, they're, they're more, recept- more their receptive. Your antenna
0: is up, yeah, for
1: yeah, sure. okay, but we have to be hit over the head. You have to say, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, so, but what's interesting is, I think one of the major differences between a person of African descent raised in America and a person of African descent raised in Africa, one distinguishing feature is our reaction to that type of prejudice. Mm-hmm. Our reaction is typically just to stick it out. Mm-hmm. Because the idea is that, how can this person hurt me if I'm at the top of my class? Mm-hmm. You know. Now that, it may very well be that the person can hurt me and keep me from progressing, but that's not the first idea that comes to me. Mm. The first idea that comes to me is, hmm, what do I need to do to simply overcome this obstacle? And that often, that usually does not mean that I need to quit and go someplace else. Yeah, interesting. It just means, in this circumstance, what do I need to do in this circumstance to make this work? Mm. And interestingly, it doesn't mean that you're going to become subservient. Mm-hmm. or docile, or, or anything like that. It just means that your, your your human spirit is going to triumph, and it will do so by, by your rising above, you know, really in a spiritual way, mm-hmm. what's going on around you, and, you know, sort of just rising above the problem.
0: Now, at what point in your life did you become a Baha'i?
1: When I was nine years old in oh. Ghana.
0: What were the circumstances?
1: <laughs> well, we had been attending catechism school. Mm-hmm. My sister and I. She, my mom would would send us there every Saturday to 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 learn. You know about all the ritual mm-hmm. and other things and prayers and, and things. I I had a lot of trouble with catechism school personally as a child. There was a lot that I didn't agree with, a lot that I didn't understand, but. But a lot I didn't agree with, and I think...
0: At nine years old?
1: At Oh, well, this was before nine. Really? Oh, yeah. And and my major issue had to do with this idea that only the Catholics were going to heaven. Okay. And I had a problem with that because so my they, they... family were Muslim, and they were wonderful people. Right. And my mom's—this is my dad's family. My mother's family were Baptists, and they were fantastic. Mm-hmm. And the little children I played with at home and at school were wonderful. Mm -hmm. And so it just didn't seem to me that that could be correct.
0: So that's what they were teaching in
1: catechism. Well, it it eventually came up, yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not a topic in catechism school. Mm -hmm. Okay? I mean, you you learn prayers, you you learn the kneeling and and all that. You learn... The protocol mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. but at some point in discussions with the Catholic Father and, and us children in the class, that became really clear I see and I just was tormented mm. I was absolutely tormented by that i just it didn 't make sense to me, and I was also terrified because I, I almost felt like you know all these wonderful people I know don 't know they 're going to hell, mm. you know, and I felt like I was keeping a secret from them, and it was horrible so eventually we stopped going to catechism school, not because we we weren't Catholics, but circumstances were such that we were no longer going.
0: Can you share what the circumstances were?
1: The situation became problematic because, uh, I guess, you can say that I I became somewhat disruptive. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on, on account of just my unease. <laughs> uh,
0: okay, sure, sure.
1: You know, and so my because of that, we we were considered problems. Uh, my sister and I, although my sister didn't do anything but sit there and cry. Yeah. You know, from the beginning of the class to the end, but I was a vocal little one. Right. And yeah. and so. So what, would, what
0: was what was your mother's take on your disruptiveness?
1: You know what? She never said anything to me about it. Wow. And and so. I have to tell you, I was so thrilled to be out of that class. Yeah. I mean, I was so glad we weren't going back. And besides which, my mom shopped every Saturday, Mm -hmm. and she would drop us off at catechism school and then go shopping, and I was already peeved at that because it meant I couldn't follow her around, (laughs) you know, and ask for stuff, you know, in the grocery store. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that already didn't sit well with me. (laughs) So we stopped going and it turned out that we lived in a house that was about ten minutes walking distance from the baha'i center Mm -hmm. but we didn't know that we never really went down that road and and we just weren't familiar with the baha'i center but i had this very very deep longing i mean despite my issues with catholic doctrine i loved worshiping god i loved being in church and i just longed for the opportunity to be in a in a worshiping environment, you know. Mm-hmm. So, meanwhile, my mom, who I've mentioned is American, was having a lot of struggles in Ghana. She couldn't eat the food. She couldn't handle the heat. She wasn't couldn't. She didn't understand the clothing, the dress code. She just didn't. She didn't understand the culture. She didn't appreciate the culture. She just was having a lot of problems, so she sought out other Americans. And she met an American by the name of Janice Washington. And it turns out that Janice Washington was a Baha'i pioneering in Ghana. And so Janice apparently mentioned the Baha'i religion to my mother. And my mother was very upset and Mm. very concerned that this whole message was from the devil. yeah. And basically informed Janice that, first of all, Janice was not to bring this religion up again, and if she did, the the friendship would be over. Mm. Okay, So Janice never brought it up again. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, (laughs) there was a second Baha'i pioneer in Ghana by the name of Geraldine Ankra. And Geraldine was living at the Baha'i Center at the time, and the living quarters associated with the Baha'i Center were kind of tough for her. Mm-hmm. And we lived in a in a large house that had several bedrooms, and and so Geraldine and Janice Washington got together. Janice told Geraldine about our home and my mother and everything, and decided that she would introduce them, and then perhaps Geraldine could get a room, you mm-hmm. know, in our home. Mm-hmm. So my mom and Geraldine were introduced, and my mom took a liking to Geraldine, mm-hmm. and Geraldine moved in with us. And by the way, Janice had told Geraldine never mention the Baha'i Faith to Blanche. Blanche is my mother. Mm-hmm. So she'd warned her beforehand. Right. But Geraldine found me one day, um, invited me to her room and asked me what my what our religious affiliation was. And, you know, I proudly told her we were pretty much thrown out of catechism <laughs> school and, you know, all this, and just was so proud and pleased. <laughs> and You know, she wanted to know what my issues and problems were, and I explained my issues and problems, and she said to me, you know, you're right. And I said, well, what do you mean? And this was when I was nine years old. Mm. And she said to me, well, every single one of the founders of the world's great religions comes from one and the same God. Every single one of these religions is a pathway to one and the same truth." all of your relatives, your aunts, your uncles, your friends, the rest of your family, all of these people are on one of those paths. And, and she explained to me that these were Baha'i teachings. So, so she, she men- basically sh- explained so to me the concept, the Baha'i concept of progressive revelation.
0: And she mentioned the B word.
1: Yes. <laughs> she mentioned it to me. She mentioned the B word. She mentioned Baha'i to me. She used the classroom analogy, you know, she explained that if you have a, uh, an elementary school starting from kindergarten, kindergarten going all the way up through the sixth grade, you have a principal of the school and you have a teacher for every grade. And all of the teachers teach the children according to their level of knowledge and understanding mm-hmm. and not their own. And she pointed out that the sixth grade teacher can teach kindergarten, the kindergarten teacher can teach fifth grade. They, they can switch up. Mm. You know, so they all have the same level of knowledge, but what they give to the students depends upon the level of students. And she also pointed out that the crowning glory of each teacher is for all the kids to graduate to the next grade. Mm. And so humanity's duty is to move on to the next grade, and she likened each of these teachers to the various representatives of the world's great religion. Mm-hmm. And that made a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. I was just, of course, very enchanted with all the grown-up attention. Mm -hmm. And when this thing was over, she gave me a prayer book. It was a little tan-colored prayer book that had communion with God inscribed in gold letters across the front. And I had never seen anything so beautiful in all my life. I just thought it was wonderful. And she she said to me, Baha'is are followers of Baha'u'llah. Baha'u'llah is the founder of the Baha'i faith. And this book contains prayers of Baha'u'llah. And this book also contains prayers of the Ba'b. And she explained to me that the Ba'b was the forerunner of Baha'u'llah. And she explained to me that his, his station may be likened, or his purpose may be likened to that of John the Baptist. So, you know, she, she, she really gave me all the details. Hmm. And she said, this book contains prayers from the Ba'b, and this book contains divinely revealed prayers from Baha'u'llah. And she pointed out two particular prayers. She pointed out a prayer called the Remover of Difficulties Prayer, where she said, you know, you say this prayer, and if you have any problem, your problem will be solved.
0: How, does, she, how does the prayer go?
1: The prayer goes, is there any remover of difficulties? Save God. Say, praise be God, he is God. All are his servants, and all abide by his bidding. And I've always loved this prayer because what i realized was that, you know, the prayer starts with a question. Mm. You know, essentially, is there any entity that, you know, can remove your difficulty? Mm. And it then follows up with an answer, the answer of which is, of course, mm-hmm. it's God, praise be to God, mm. because all humanity are his servants, and all abide by his bidding. And so, she, she showed me that prayer, and then she showed me a second short prayer which is known as the, the short healing prayer. And she said, if anyone needs healing and you say this prayer for them, eventually they'll be healed.
2: And
0: how does that prayer go?
1: That prayer goes, thy name is my healing, O my God, and remembrance of thee is my remedy. Nearness to thee is my hope, and love for thee is my companion. Thy mercy to me is my healing and my succor in both this world and the world to come. Thou verily art the all-bountiful, the all-knowing, the all-wise. And, again, this prayer, similar to the the Remover of Difficulties prayer that I I cited just before, the the two prayers are similar in that there is an acknowledgement, in both of them, of the omniscience of God. There's an acknowledgement of the power of God, and there is just as a component of the prayer a reliance on God and of course I mean I was completely completely enamored, enchanted by these prayers I I was deeply moved by these prayers and and, and at that time we were having a lot of problems my dad had we moved back to Ghana of course but after we moved back to Ghana believe it or not he was not able to find employment because of tribalism And his tribe was not in power, and and therefore opportunities were not present for people from his tribe, essentially, Mm -hmm. except sort of menial sorts of jobs. And so Mm -hmm. he descended into alcoholism, Mm -hmm. and my mother was suffering from a deep depression. And so basically things were very chaotic Mm -hmm. at home. Mm -hmm. So Geraldine gave me this book in these prayers, and I loved, the book was beautiful, the prayers I was struck by. And I made a decision to say these prayers. And then, because even at that age I was a little scientist, (laughs) I thought to myself, you know what? This kind of sounds like hocus pocus. Mm. I'm going to test the prayers. So I decided that when I had a problem, I would test the Remover of Difficulties prayer by saying it and seeing if the problem was resolved. So several days went by, and I lost my doll. So I searched around for the doll, and I couldn't find the doll, and I thought, ooh, this is the perfect opportunity to say this prayer. So I rushed up to my room. And and by the way, I was so enchanted by the prayers that I learned them by heart very shortly after I had received them. Mm -hmm. So I ran up to my room. I said the short, remover-of-difficulties prayer. I contemplated for a minute after the prayer, because Geraldine had told me, when you say these prayers, sit in silence, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and meditate upon the prayer. And put yourself in a receptive mood. So, you know, I was sort of practicing that. Mm-hmm. And the idea came to me to look under my bed. So I looked under the bed, and of course, you know there was no doll there, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought, hmm <laughs> you know. And right that second... My mother called me and I ran downstairs and she said to me, Go to the pantry, which was next door to the kitchen, right? Which was and she was in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And she said, Get some get some butter out of the freezer. I'm gonna make you and your sister some cinnamon rolls. We need to take out the butter so it'll thaw. And I remember being so irritated. My mom is <laughs> uh, she, she's in Ghana, so she's probably not gonna hear this, but I was really irritated and I was thinking to myself why did she call me all the way from upstairs to come down here to get butter in a room that she was next door to? You know, she could have gotten this or And This is what I was thinking. Sure. So I go to the pantry, open up the freezer, and move the turkey to get at the butter, and there was my doll. Oh, my gosh. And, of course, I mean, a logical question is, how did your doll end up in the deep freezer? Well, earlier that day, my sister and I had had an altercation <laughs> and she had decided that to get back at me, she would hide my doll in a place where I would never find it. oh my gosh and she put it in the freezer, so when that happened, and I saw that doll, I was a believer from that moment in time. Mm. at that point i I truly believed it wasn't that I believed I knew that if I said those prayers, for my mother and my father, those problems, my mother's depression and my father's alcoholism would disappear. Mm. I knew it for a fact. It was just, in my mind and in my heart, it was a foregone con- conclusion.
0: You had obtained empirical evidence.
1: Oh, it's bingo! In fact, it was direct evidence. It's interesting because... That would not have been appropriate evidence if I was an adult. (laughs) I don't think so. I count myself as lucky Mm in having that type of confirmation at such a young age. I went and I spoke to to Geraldine and I said to her, I told her what happened and I said, I now know that if I say these prayers, this will happen and the problems will be solved. And I said to her, I long to go with you to the Baha'i Center. And she said, if you say these prayers and your parents' problems are resolved, you will be able to come to the Baha'i Center with me. And to me, that again was a foregone conclusion. Mm -hmm. And so I became devoted to saying these prayers for my mother and my father. And I would say them diligently every day. And one day, my father came home sober. Which had not happened for a long, long time. Hmm. And when he came home sober, he suddenly realized that there was this woman in the house named Geraldine who was <laughs> living with us, which he kind of admit he missed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's how bad things were.
0: Oh gosh!
1: And he wanted to know who she was and what she was doing. And she explained to him that she was a Baha'i and that she was. In so Ghanab. your parents,
0: so your your mother knew she was a Baha'i at this point.
1: My mother. Knew she was a Baha'i, but Geraldine did not bring it up and had promised not to raise the issue. Okay. But Geraldine was talking to me, and Geraldine had told me, this is this is our little discussion.
2: Right.
1: <laughs> you know, right. you don't need to, you don't have to divulge this to anyone mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. So I was doing this without anyone's knowledge. Okay. Uh, okay?
0: Mm-hmm. So you finally came home. He came home. Recognized sober. Geraldine
1: just met Geraldine, basically, (laughs) for the first time. Okay, although she'd been living there (laughs) for eons. Mm -hmm. And wanted to know, you know, why she was in Ghana. And, you know, she mentioned that she was a Baha'i pioneer, and then he wanted to know, what's that? Okay, so, uh, you know, I mentioned my dad was a lawyer. And so he just gave her a really long interrogation that lasted several hours. Hmm. I told you earlier that he had decided he was an atheist. Mm -hmm. and I learned that night that the reason was that when he was a child, they had been required to learn the Quran Mm -hmm. by heart in Arabic. That was their training. That was considered to be their schooling. And no one could ever explain to him why it was that he needed to learn these verses. So he wouldn't learn them, and so they would whip him every day. Oh, boy. And he had scars all over his legs from that. I mean, we never knew what the scars were from. But, you know, I found out that evening, and so he had decided that if that was what God was about, he really wasn't interested. Yeah. So Geraldine's talking to my dad for hour after, deep into the night, hour after hour after hour, and finally, in the wee hours of the morning, my dad said to her, well, how do you become a Baha'i? And she explained that, well, to be a Baha'i, All you need is is to believe that Baha'u'llah is the manifestation of God for this day and age. And, you know, when Baha'is say manifestation, that term is used in the Baha'i scripture to refer to the founders of the world's religions because, among other things, they manifest the qualities and attributes of God. Mm. And so, you know, she said, if you believe that Baha'u'llah is the manifestation of God for this day and age in the same way that a person believes that Jesus is the Christ and is, is the manifestation of God that was prophesied in the Bible, and, you know, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. that you're a Baha'i. And she explained that there is also an, an administrative component to this in that there's a declaration card that you sign that's turned into the national governing body so that they, they can have you on record as, as having declared yourself a Baha'i. And my dad asked for a declaration card and became a Baha'i that night. Wow. Of course, the next day he came home drunk. Oh, really? Oh, yes. I mean, because, you know, he was an alcoholic. You don't just overcome alcoholism when you come home sober one day. Mm -hmm. But to my sheer delight, he decided that now that he's a Baha'i, he's going to the Baha'i Center which was the place in Accra. Accra was the cap- is the capital city in Ghana, mm-hmm. and we were living in Accra, and, and the Baha'i Center is, the you know, there are Baha'i Centers in cities all over the world, which is where, you know, we worship and have our various weekly activities and stuff. So my dream came true, which is that I got to go to a place to worship, mm. which was something I, was long- I just so longed for. And so Sunday came. On Sunday mornings, they would have what they would call a fireside at the Baha'i Center. And the fireside was a gathering where there usually was some topic that was going to be discussed, but it was sort of an open forum and full; it was a public event, so anyone could come in. And the idea would be to discuss the the Baha'i point of view on this topic and then, you know, open up the floor to questions and and comments and things like that. And they were always wonderful because typically people of very many different religious backgrounds came together, to, to engage in these discussions, my dad Sunday morning came, and by ten a m he was completely plastered. Mm. I mean, he was totally drunk. and he did, he insisted on being taken to the Baha'i Center. So he couldn't walk. <laughs> okay? And so he had to be hoisted up into the car. The driver and the gardener got up, the driver was driving, and the gardener also got up in the car because of course, if he was going to the Baha'i Center, someone needed to take him, you know, into the center. And we arrived at the center, and the driver and the gardener hoisted him up and sort of dragged him into the Bahai center. And you know, we entered this room and the room had a center table with circles arranged concentrically around the center table. And apparently they knew he was coming. Hmm. And it was clear he was drunk and i mean you know two men are hoisting holding him up you know and his head is cocked to the side and he's mumbling and you know i'm behind mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. entering into this bahai center and the bahais all jump to their feet and they were saying oh 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 lawyer musa has come lawyer musa has come put him in the seat of honor, you know, and they placed him in the middle, it, at the center concentric circle, mm-hmm. and praised him and just showered him with all this love, and they seemed to be oblivious to the fact that he was drunk. Mm-hmm. And they then picked up where they left off in, in, in the fireside talk, mm-hmm. and eventually my father fell asleep and began to... And they just talked louder and just treated him like he was a king. Mm. And when it was over, we went home. The next Sunday was the same thing. The next Sunday was the same thing. And they treated this man like a king every single time. Now, subsequent, later on, I found out that they had commissioned the entire community of Accra to pray for him. Mm. Okay? Mm-hmm. Because. The idea is that, in the Baha'i faith, the idea is that prayer causes or begets transformation. So, you know, a lot of times people think, transform first, then become a Baha'i. And it's really the other way around. Mm. The prayers that you learn and that you're exposed to, these divinely revealed prayers, really become the catalyst for the transformation of the soul. Mm. and they understood that they, they understood that and so they were not concerned with the oh, you know, people will think Baha'is are drunkards. Mm. You, you know, mm-hmm. anyway eventually, to make a, a, another long but very interesting story short <laughs> my father fell down a flight of stairs and fell into a coma mm. and it, w- in, while in the coma he had a dream That included a number of the central figures of the faith, including Mm Baha'u'llah. And when he arose from the coma, he was completely and totally cured of his alcohol addiction. Wow. And by that I mean, truly, I mean, there was absolutely no desire whatsoever to consume alcohol. It was as though he had never consumed alcohol, and he never touched it for the rest of his life. Wow. Amazing. What happened was, the day that I opened up the freezer and saw the doll, the day I lost my doll was the day I decided I was a Baha'i. Now, Now, my mom became a Baha'i a bit later. My father had been trying to encourage her to read a variety of Baha'i books on various topics, and she didn't want to have anything to do with it. And one day, he came home, and when she realized he was coming home, she grabbed a Baha'i book off the shelf, and you know, tried to act like she was reading it so she wouldn't have to hear his mouth. <laughs> and she happened to open the book up to a page that was explaining something in the Bible that had frightened her from the time she was a child. It was talking about how, in the end times, how at the time of the resurrection, the dead would rise. Mm-hmm. And she had this vision of these partially decayed bodies all mm-hmm. rising out of the ground. Mm-hmm. And this had completely frightened her. And in this book, it was talking about the Baha'i perspective on that, which is that reference to the dead is really a reference to the spiritually dead. And how, with the return of Christ in the glory of the Father, which is who Baha'is believe Baha'u'llah is, Mm -hmm. which is a very staggering claim, which which warrants an investigation, I would say. Mm -hmm. But she read further... And she became a Baha'i the day that she read that passage.
0: What a story.
1: Yes. Yeah. and so at that point, the entire family was Baha'i.
0: I guess family life really changed after that, huh?
1: Um, yes, it was like night and day. Mm. It changed totally, for the better.
0: <laughs> Robbie, thank you so much for sharing your story with me.
1: Thank you very, very much.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Robbie Musa an associate professor of biochemistry at the State University of New York. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.